the people who use your product, you know, they're not going to sleep at night thinking about your brand or the thing that you designed that they interacted with for a few minutes. You know, they have bigger goals in life. And so to the extent that what you're doing can like impact those bigger goals or make their day better, I think that's what I think of as like the call is like that outcome and less about awareness of the brand that I'm building for. Welcome to the Future Podcast, a show that explores the interesting overlap between design, marketing, and business. I'm Greg Gunn. Picture yourself at the airport. You've just returned from a long, arduous flight, and you're exhausted. The last thing you want to do is get in your car and make the lengthy drive home. So you open a ride-sharing app, hail a car, and moments later, you're on your way home. Oh, except the car is driving itself while you nap in the backseat. Strangely enough, if you live in the metro Phoenix area, you can do that, all with the help of autonomous ride service, Waymo. Now, our guest today is the interaction design lead for Waymo. Her and her team are responsible for designing all consumer touch points for the company, both the app and the writer experience. Now, if you thought designing a website was tricky, imagine designing a driverless car experience. How do you quell that innate fear and skepticism of a robot driving you around? In this episode, we talk about human-centered design, the inherent challenges of new technology, and what skills you need to be a great UX designer. Please enjoy our conversation with Lauren Schwendeman. Lauren, I'm super happy to have you on the show, and uh, I'm a little rusty because I haven't recorded an episode in some time, so forgive me as I sweep off the cobwebs here. And for people who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself to our audience, please? Hi, Chris. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, My name is Lauren, and I'm an interaction design lead at Waymo. And at Waymo, I lead a team of designers responsible for designing basically every consumer-facing touchpoint of the Waymo One rider experience. So for those who don't know what Waymo One is, Waymo One is Waymo's autonomous ride-hailing service and we're operating fully autonomously, meaning there's no human driver anywhere in the vehicle, which is super exciting. Um, And we're fully publicly available in the Metro Phoenix area. Um, So you can imagine that there's a lot that needs to be designed for such a new experience. And so my team designs the mobile app that lets you hail rides and all the digital touch points throughout the journey. So the in-car experience, the... um, there's a tablet touchscreen in the car, all the audio, all the external displays, anything that a person would interact with when they hail our autonomous cars. And my team is also responsible for all the brand and marketing design uh, that you see for Waymo. And we partner closely with our marketing team for all of that material. That sounds super cool. We're called the future, uh, but we just talk about it. You're actually living in the future. And this <laughs> idea of autonomous vehicles uh, that are safer to be in and that uh, maybe will prevent accidents from happening. I'm just curious about this because you're you're up and running, right? You're in the Phoenix market? That's right. Uh, the Metro Phoenix area. For those familiar, um, Chandler uh, is, is in the Metro Phoenix area and that's uh, where we're currently operating. 
so, so yeah, it's super exciting to, and it, even for those of us who design it and live and breathe it every day, riding in one of our cars and experiencing that steering wheel moving and doing all the driving while you're sit, sitting in the back seat is really mind blowing. Yeah. I'm just curious too, like how big is the fleet? And I have a lot of questions about Waymo and then I'll, I'll come back to you and your story and how you wound up doing what you do. Okay, great. Um, so you're asking how big our fleet is? Yes. I'm not exactly sure how many cars we're operating currently to today in the Phoenix area or whether we share that number publicly. I see. Uh, but I do, I, I keep closer track of like how, how long it takes to hail a ride things like that. Uh, but, um, we are, you know, like I said, operating publicly and, uh, for those who are using it, it's, uh, you can hail a ride, um, within a reasonable amount of time and, and get a ride. Uh, and so, so yeah, that's what we want to make sure that for everyone we're serving that experience is, is seamless and, and a good experience. Mm. Now, like in, in news uh, recently, I, I, I read about, uh, another accident with a Tesla semi-autonomous vehicle when there was nobody in the driver's seat and something had happened really bad again. And so there's, there's some general fear. I mean, if you look at it relative to the number of accidents created by humans driving, it's, it's a tiny amount. Uh, and right. I'm just curious what the challenges that you're hearing in terms of people saying, instead of taking a, a different uh, ride sharing uh, app, why, what are they thinking about Waymo in terms of their, their resistance? Right. No, that's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, the way that uh, we approach our service is definitely safety first comes before anything else. And we are aware that people want to learn about um, the safety and, 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 it, and it's new. So people, you know, may have questions, but because we've taken this safety first approach and um, have been driving for a very long time, we have confidence that we're a safe option for people and everyone who rides in our cars um, what we prioritize is the trust and transparency that we want to build with them. And our level of autonomy is such that we don't require people to step in and, and take the wheel at any point in time. So that's how we've really built our service is, is to allow people to relax and experience uh, the ride as, as a passenger and not to have to drive. So we've taken a, a different approach than some other folks have. And, and again, we, we really uh, prioritize our safety story so that we can build that trust with our riders. In, in terms of overcoming that mental hurdle, because fears are emotional and irrational, what, what do you do from a design point of view to solve some of those challenges? Right. That's a great question. So for those who have the chance to ride in our cars, trust and transparency, like I said, is really at the center of the experience that we build. And so when you ride in a Waymo car, What's really interesting, and I, I spoke about the tablet experience that's in the car, that view, that experience allows you to see what the car sees and really have that picture of, of what the driver, the Waymo driver knows and sees. And what's interesting is you, you get a sense for uh, what the Waymo driver can see and know that actually a human driver couldn't. So, um, you know, hundreds of yards ahead, you could see that there's a, there's a stoplight and the Waymo driver sees that stoplight. And by building in that transparency and helping people see what the Waymo driver sees, um, as they take that ride, they gain confidence and trust in the system and, and, and are able to relax as they gain more experience riding in the cars. Um, so we really designed the in-car experience in a way that supports that trust by providing transparency and helping people kind of see a window into what the Waymo driver sees. 
That's really cool. Do you have a name for that? Uh, we, so the driver, you know, we call the Waymo driver, um, and that's the autonomous driving technology and the view in the car we call, I don't, you know, I don't know that it's trademarked, but, um, internally we call it the car view and it's really what the car sees. And, uh, we've, we found that our riders like really, really value this view and, and it becomes one of our key differentiators for folks and even calling out small details, for example, um, we can render uh, construction cones on the screen itself. So when people are driving and, and these are dynamic objects in the road, you know, it's not like we've, we've mapped everything and just drawn it into our system. The car is recognizing dynamic objects and, and you can see that as you're riding along. And so people will point out like, wow, it saw those traffic cones or it knows we are in a school zone. And it's, it's not only what the car sees, but it's also what we know about the environment all layered in together. Um, and it's, you know, part of the design challenges is, is making sure that we provide the right level of information so that it's not overwhelming to riders, but also does support that trust. So that's, that's been really a lot of the work that we've done is how do we thread that needle to provide enough information that it supports trust without making riders feel like they have to babysit the driver the whole time, you know, because the, the driver's really got it and, uh, and is taking care of everything. Yeah, I think that's a really clever um, way to ease people's concern. You're, you're giving them a peek into the brain of the driver. I mean, because with a human driver, you're never quite sure if that person's paying attention. So my wife and I, we always joke about this. Like whenever I'm tired, she's like, I'll drive. And I usually am. Not, I don't get a lot of rest when she's driving because of the way she drives. I'm like, are you, honey, did you see that? <laughs> you're providing that kind of, it's almost like supervision. That's right. Where this, the, the Waymo driver has superior um, uh, senses uh, compared to a human being that their ability to see down the road and maybe even around corners and detect things that most people are not paying attention to. So that probably puts the customer at ease. And maybe over time, they don't even look at that screen anymore because like it's got it. I don't have to worry anymore. Right. That's exactly right. And um, not only does it see down the road, it sees in 360 degree direction. It's not ever texting, uh, you know, so while we have experience as drivers, as people, uh, once you really understand the capability of, of what the Waymo driver can do, then, then it does really put people at ease. And our, what's interesting is our goal with that screen isn't to engage our riders the whole time. It is to give them enough information for them to really relax and let go and spend that time as they please. Because that's really the outcome that, that we want for people is the benefit of what we're doing is giving people that time back, that space back, that mind space back, that energy back that they would otherwise be spending driving to do it, you know, to spend as they please. So we don't want them watching the screen the whole time necessarily, but it's there providing that uh, level of comfort and ease and, and really enabling the, the relaxation that, that we want. What are you doing before the, the writer even decides to download the app and, and to give it a, a shot? Because I think you have to be fairly open-minded to do this. I, I'm, I'm envisioning my parents having a hard time, like I'm not getting that thing, right? <laughs> Because where's the human? And, and so, what what are you doing on on the on the front end to 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 put people at ease? Like this is something that they should try versus an Uber or Lyft. Right. That's a that's a great question. I think where we are right now in our development is we're really focused on the product itself and making it great. And we have we have writers writing, and and we really believe that as we develop the product and and expand it that. Uh, that will come and that writers 
will want to ride because they'll hear about, you know, their friend who rode or their family member who rode or, you know, right now the, the gate for us right now isn't necessarily getting more people in, in the cars where we are in, in Phoenix, we have great ridership. And so uh, we're, you know, we're developing the product and it's so early in the, in the world of autonomous driving that, that we feel like we're in a good position where we are at, at the current moment. But I do, I do think that people will just need to be exposed to what Waymo is and, and the service that we offer. And, and that over time, that comfort will grow as word spreads and people learn more about it. And of course, we have, you know, marketing teams and communications teams that are, are working on getting the word out as well. But I, I think that that will come as, as, as things evolve in the next few years. Fantastic. I mean, I'm personally looking forward to this future where we're having autonomous vehicles. So for a lot of different reasons, it'll probably be safer on the road for pedestrians and other automobiles, but also it's like, it's going to free up people to do other things besides something that can be done by a robot. I'm a big believer in this. If a robot can do it better than you, you need to do something else with your life. Mm -hmm. So some people are going to feel threatened by hearing this Mm -hmm. uh, because there's a whole industry built on on moving people from point A to point B, Mm -hmm. but this is most definitely the future, right? So I think it's time if you're listening to this and if you're going, if your job or your industry is going to be impacted by this, it's it's not a question if it's just going to be a matter of when. So I, obviously these kinds of technologies are going to be used in other applications as well, not just for shuttling people from point A to point B. Um, just just one, one other quick question about the experience. I've, I've been mostly raising fears and challenges, but mm-hmm. what are some of the benefits that you see in terms of having an autonomous vehicle as, as uh, your driver? Yeah, this is a great question because I think it's what motivates a lot of us who are at Waymo and thinking of the long-term opportunities for autonomous driving and for the product that we're building. I think the first thing I think about is riders and people who who use our service to get around. And I think not only some of the things you just mentioned where you know your your time is freed up, uh, you're not spending one to two hours a day in traffic and really beholden to driving a vehicle. That is huge, being able to spend that time how you want. But also uh, just the independence that it can unlock for folks who, for, for different reasons, aren't able to drive themselves or for whom it's hard to get a ride with a person driving. Uh, you know, the opportunity long term is to democratize the ability to get around and the ability to move through the world. and. That's a huge opportunity to contribute to that future is, is one thing that really motivates me um, to, to feel safe going anywhere uh, I, I can or want. Then I think about like a safer world, really, um, with cars that are, that are driving safely on the road. And, you know, we tolerate, <laughs> we tolerate kind of the negative outcomes of traffic accidents as just kind of the price to pay for transportation, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so I think about that. And you, I mean, you mentioned things being automated in the future and the impact of that. And I, I just also see a lot of opportunity in, in different you know, industries that support um, autonomous driving and, and the opportunities for autonomy to lead to more kind of growth in different areas and different you know, economic opportunities. So I think that things certainly will shift, but I think that they can shift to something better as well. Great. I mean, as you were talking, I was just thinking about uh, if you're an able-bodied person, healthy without any physical restrictions, 
maybe you're not super excited about this, but for young people, like I have two, two kids, I have elderly parents and in an autonomous vehicle, taking them where they need to go without worrying about the driver themselves, because we hear about certain incidents. I don't want to bring them up, but you have to yeah. take into consideration the personality, the temperament of the person driving. Some people are very aggressive when they drive. Uh, some people are reckless. Uh, some people are prone to share their political views. And sometimes when I'm driving or, or riding, I just really not in the mood for that. So you have a stable, consistent person or the Waymo driver taking you from place to place. I also think in this time of the pandemic, maybe it's like, I don't want another human in the car with me. And maybe that just puts my mind at ease at some level. So some some benefits there. Definitely. Yeah. I'd love to shift the conversation a little bit um, more, more to you now. And because um, I'm just excited about autonomous vehicles <laughs> in the future. Right. So I, I read um, in, in your bio that you studied uh, communication and got your degree in that before entering into design. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious what happened to you. And, and I think you were working as a, a softball coach in college, like teaching people. Like, <laughs> when did, when did you start to realize, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious about this other thing. And do you, do you remember what triggered that thought? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, I think to get at it, I need to rewind even a little bit further before college. Creativity has always been, and design has always kind of been in my blood and in my background and uh, part of where I came from in that I come from a family of makers and builders and artists. So uh, for example, my mom is an interior designer and her mom was an interior designer. My grandfather was a home builder. Um, I have aunts who are artists and architects. So growing up, I had a big value in art and design and creativity. And I, as a kid, I wanted to be like my mom and become an interior designer. So that was something that kind of I I carried with me at like a low level, (laughs) I guess I would say. And as a young person, I was also a competitive athlete. So I, I played softball competitively. I played basketball, tennis, and I actually went to school, um, and played division one softball, fast pitch softball at Northwestern University. And so leading up to my undergrad degree, I was very focused in competitive softball. And upon graduating, I felt very passionately about my experience as a collegiate athlete and as an athlete growing up and the opportunity to really, you know, impact young people. And so I did go right into coaching when I graduated because I I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do long-term, but it was something that I loved. And so it was during that time that I realized, well, I don't know that I, you know, that this is my long-term career, but I, you know, I have always had this draw to design and art and doing something more creative. Uh, I had taken fine art painting classes in college, and that was always something that was kind of like a side passion of mine. And I thought, well, for my career, you know, let's look at that more closely. And and I, I had a mentor at the time who I mentioned this to, who mentioned that he knew of a uh, program. And I was living in Chicago at the time, and the program was at the Institute of Design at Illinois Institute of Technology. And uh, this program uh, was really interesting because it was a design school, but it was a design school that really 
kind of bridged and um, bridged with social sciences and, uh, you know, designing products to solve problems for real people and understand how psychology of why people use different things and, you know, a human-centered design program, basically. And this was all new to me and was super interesting because I had studied communications in undergrad, like you say, and mostly because I felt like it was kind of the most applicable path to any career, future career. I didn't know what career I wanted, but I knew that, you know, I was really interested in people and how they communicate and how they think. So it was like this very kind of psychology slash interpersonal communication focused degree that did feed well into kind of human-centered design and the program that I studied at the Institute of Design. So I'd say my path into design was one that like, like I said, it was kind of always there on a low rumble, this like interest in design and, you know, an artistic bent coupled with what I studied in undergrad, which was people and how they interact and how they think and wanting to use design and, you know, creativity, you know, artistic creativity, kind of that lens to help solve problems that exist in the real world for real people in ways that are very like applied. Um, like that was super interesting to me. And so that's, you know, when I dove into my experience at the Institute of Design and, and learned about human-centered design. And, and that's where I became more familiar with interaction design. And that was like 2005. And so, you know, the iPhone hadn't come out yet, but everything was really moving fast in this digital world. And, and so the opportunity to, you know, learn how like digital products could solve problems for real people was like super interesting to me. And so I felt like I was kind of at the right place at the right time to learn about those opportunities and then to, you know, come into the industry right around that time when like mobile was taking off. I'd, I'd like to dive in a little deeper because our audience is usually made up of creative people or people who are thinking about making that jump into a life of creativity. So mm -hmm. I, I want to spend some more time in there because maybe some part of your story will resonate with them and give them the courage to say like, yeah, I think this is for me. So there's a couple of things I'm thinking about as you're telling that story. As a senior in college, you're, were you thinking about what am I going to do when I finish school? Because it's like you, you majored in something that I still don't fully understand, like communication <laughs> studies. I'm doing air quotes like you can see them, right? And are you thinking like, what the heck am I going to do? I'm going to pay off my loans. I'm yes. going to support myself. And what were your thoughts like as a, as a senior thinking, oh man, end of the road is coming here. I got to figure some, something out. I guess I should have been more stressed out than I was, <laughs> probably. Um, I would say, uh, you know, I had... Uh, I mentioned that I, you know, I played Division One softball and my coaches early on in my senior year had said like, hey, we really love if you stayed on as a pitching coach when you graduate. And so I was like, great, I can put this off another year <laughs> or more. Um, and I was so in that competitive world that, um, and I felt like I should explore if I like coaching. And, and that felt like something that was worth exploring whether that I wanted to do something in that space longer term. And so for me, I kind of considered that as like my first next step and I'll see where things go from here. You know, when I got into it, I realized I love playing softball. I love the opportunity to have like a positive impact on people's lives, but I don't know that I want to be like a, a competitive coach. 
um, and have this as a career. So that's when I really did that. Um, I guess maybe some of that soul searching that you're describing um, that you'd expect maybe would have happened in my senior year in college. Uh, and that's where I, you know, I feel fortunate to have stumbled upon the program that I did because it did just match my interests so well. Yeah, I'd say um, that I I had a, maybe a more moderate level of stress about what I would do. And then, like I said, um, I really feel fortunate that that I, you know, I did research into different design programs and I, I talked to people that I knew and um, I felt fortunate that you know, there was a program in the city I lived that I could explore further and that it ended up being such a good fit. Mm. It's so hard for me to wrap my head around this because most of the creative people I know, I know I'm playing into stereotypes, are not athletic at all. It's the opposite of that, <laughs> right? So you're talking about playing on the college level, multiple sports, softball, basketball, tennis, those kinds of things. And then you're good enough that the, your, your coach is like, hey, why don't you teach this thing too? Why don't you help us coach? And And so I'm still trying to like, Where's the art nerd and what happened, <laughs> right? So I, I'm, I'm just listening to your background and you tell me that you're, there's like two generations of interior designers. First of all, you probably lived in a fabulous home and you're surrounded by art and, and, and architecture. And then when one person grows up in that, it's all around you. Is it, that, that would have been a fantasy of mine to be able <laughs> to grow up in, in an environment like that. But then does right. that... Does that numb you to it? It's like you just take it for granted like this is all, you know, everybody lives in a posh home and everything's always <laughs> in the right place. Well, my mom would be the first to tell you that she's embarrassed of how her house looks relative to her work. But <laughs> I, I would I would still say that it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it is designed by a designer. So I think any designer would be self-critical that way. Right. But it's a good question. It's something that I've, you know, wrestled with, I think, because I think I always had interest in art and design, but I didn't feel like I fit in with like the super artistic crowd per se. It's something that I think having confidence as a designer was hard initially when I went to grad school. Like, am I as designerly as you all who are here? But as I got into it, I learned that it is possible to to become a designer later in life. Mm-hmm. You, you also mentioned... Um... Uh, a college professor who was a mentor who started to introduce mm-hmm. you to this thing. So the question I have for you is, is it this one person who's the responsible for you doing what you do today? Good question. It would be hard for me to say, yes, it was all him. You know, life is funny. The, the, the small interactions that you have that lead to kind of major life decisions are kind of funny to reflect upon. Like I said, I, I think, you know, I was drawn to design. I, you know, would I have ended up on this exact path had he not suggested this program? Maybe not. I'd like to think I would have, that it wasn't all him, that I had something to do with <laughs> finding my way here as well. But like, it is, it is interesting to, when you, when you think about it that way. Yeah. Cause I often uh, reference, it's a silly movie, but Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow, mm-hmm. yeah. where she misses the subway in one timeline. And exactly. she goes back to find out her husband's a scoundrel. And then the exactly. other one, she gets on it and she never discovers that in two different lives. And I, I just think like, not to get too geeky on you, but like these, these multiple paths that splinter into a thousand different paths. And every time you make a decision, the story changes, right? And I'm, I don't believe in fate, but sometimes it feels like there's, there's something that's happening that's bigger than all of us. Where like, I'm, I'm reflecting back on my own story. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, my, uh, I was working at a silk screening shop and 
my boss at that time told me to go pick up some type setting. This is in the late, uh, late eighties, early nineties. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, typesetting? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and I go meet a graphic designer and then that, my, my timeline splits. Mm-hmm. Right? If I didn't show up to work, if he didn't send me, and if, I, if that person just gave me the typeset and didn't invite me into his studio, I don't think I'd be talking to you today in this capacity. So it's kind of weird how that all works out. So this mentor says to you, this is other thing, you know, but maybe you're interested. And then you go and get your, your master's degree in human-centered communication design. And that leads you down this 13-year career at Motorola and then now at Waymo, right? Mm-hmm. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Lauren. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to our conversation with Lauren Schwendeman. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you believe in the call in product design and what that means? Yeah, I think um, it's a great question. I love how you put, uh, how you summarized what, you know, what we were just talking about with just paths to where we all are today and where we could be in the future. You know, I like to think about uh, the call, I guess, in product design because I think that it's easy to, like what drew me to product design was really this big opportunity to make things better in some way uh, for people and kind of like a personal day-to-day level all the way to like, you know, huge leaps forward for society. And I think uh, it's easy to lose sight of like why we do what we do. And it's not to say that every designer is drawn to design for the same reason. You know, I think that there's lots of different paths or kind of inspiration to come to design. That was mine is, is really how can, how can I contribute to, you know, some, some sort of better way, big or small. And I think it's easy to, in the day-to-day work uh, for on, you know, the next feature for the product you're working on or, the next version of a website or whatever it is that you design for, it's easy to get caught up in how, you know, how can we increase engagement for this or that, or like make this more discoverable. And and it's all, you know, to serve a bigger picture of like helping people like adopt your product, which you think like will improve their lives and, and all of that. Um, I think what I really believe in is like, the, the better outcome at the end of the day. And so how can things be easier for people, you know, less friction, um, more accessible, you know, the people who use your product, you know, they're not going to sleep at night thinking about your brand 
or the thing that you designed that they interacted with for a few minutes, they, you know, they have bigger goals in life. And so the, to the extent that what you're doing can like make impact those bigger, bigger goals or make their day better. I think that's like, you know, what I think of is like the call is like that outcome and less about um, awareness of the brand that I'm building for or time spent using it. You know, it's almost like less design is better in some ways, you know? So um, anyway, that's kind of what I think about when I think, when I, when I think about that question you just asked about the call. Mm. How, how does the designer not lose sight of that, the, the bigger purpose, the goal? And, and, and to avoid the trapping of like working on a feature or some, something else that, that might be more of an expression of vanity. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I figure it out, I'll let you know. Uh, I think it, it's not always easy. And uh, so, and you know, it's not bad to get lost in the details. I think as designers, we, we kind of need to go there and do that. Uh, and so in my mind, it's, you know, it's not always trying to hold that front and center, but it's kind of coming back to it. And when you're in the middle of trying to figure out, you know, the solution to the problem of the day, then, you know, let yourself get lost in those details, but then always circle back to the bigger questions. Like, does this support, you know, a better overall experience for people? Like, does this, is this what they care most about? And it reminds me of, um, a feature that I worked on when I um, designed for mobile phones at Motorola, um, we had this new display technology that was like all about, you know, letting your phone screen stay on longer during the day without draining the battery because the phone processor wasn't running. It was just a screen that could we could render without draining the battery. And like, how do we use that technology? And, you know, there was lots of brainstorming and at the end of the day, we came back to like, how can we use this feature to let, to allow people to use their phone less? Like, what if this feature, you know, helps people get a snapshot of their notifications so that they had confidence to kind of keep doing what they're doing without getting lost um, in their phone and getting sucked into the world of their phone every day? And so I, I kind of come back to that project as an example of like, even if you're, you know, designing for a mobile phone, maybe what people want is to feel less, you know, less tied to their phone every day. Um, and maybe that's how we can make their experience better. So how do you wrestle that? I mean, that sounds like uh, those are conflicting goals where I think uh, device makers want you to spend more time on it. And then they develop a screen technology that isn't drained about or that's keeping you more tied to your phone. Mm-hmm. But as you just said, maybe it's better if we're less on our phone. So how do you reconcile that? Right. I think, you know, it comes back to, I think, recognizing the autonomy of people to really kind of make the decision for themselves what they value. You know, I think it's tempting as a designer to, to go like super prescriptive, like this is what's better for people. This is, you know, we should make it this way or design it that way. And I always, I think the tension there is like, and we should also give, you know, people the tools to enable them to like really live according to their values. And so I think there is a tension there. And in that specific project that I just mentioned, I think at the end of the day, like maybe this feature isn't going to like reduce your phone usage by 60% or anything like that. But maybe you have an affinity for this phone because it's keeping you in the know better. And I don't feel like I have to do the work to know that I, you know, I missed an email or um, my daughter's trying to reach me, it will, it'll let me know pretty clearly. And I can, 
um, keep doing what I'm doing uh, and be engaged in reading my book or doing something else. And, and so I value this phone for that reason. And, and maybe I, you know, maybe that will be the phone I get the next time because I feel like this one really lets me um, kind of embrace the values that I hold. It doesn't mean that like, you know, we think that you should never use your phone anymore or that, you know, that that's something that everyone has to embrace, less phone usage, but it does kind of give you an, a new tool in your toolbox to feel like more in control of your time. I see. So this is uh, about you as your role as a designer to utilize the technology to create an experience that informs and empowers the end user so that they can make the decisions for themselves. Right. So like what's important to me and how do I want to respond? Some people want to be notified about every little thing or some people want to only be notified about very specific things or not at all. And they can make that choice. Right. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's really cool. And and you were just also talking about something that reminded me, I think it, it's like uh, uh, Steve Jobs' ability to zoom in and zoom out. Uh, like mm-hmm. he, he could see the bigger picture of like where the company is going and then literally like fly to Italy to pick out the exact slab of marble that's going to go <laughs> into um, like an, like an Apple store. And so mm-hmm. when you talk about this, a lot of designers are in the constant zoomed in position. Mm-hmm. They're just uh, splitting pixels if you can and, and, and just staying so focused on what it looks like or, or maybe how it feels to them, but they're not stepping back to kind of just get that broader point of view. Are there any things that you do to prompt yourself like, hey, step back for a second and, and zoom out so that you can see what's going on before you zoom back in? It's a great question. I think it's an, a really important skill to be able to hold both uh, the big picture and the details. One thing from my experience that's helped me is, you know, usually in our design process, we, you know, there's a problem we want to tackle. And so we go off and we kind of break it apart. We we go deep in the details, get lost in the details, you, you know, explore all the different ends of how you could, you know, solve that problem. And then at some point you want to, loop in other people. Maybe you start with people on your immediate team, maybe other designers or researchers, uh, people who, you know, are familiar enough with the problem who can give a a good perspective. And then maybe from there you branch out to more people, maybe like more cross-functional partners. And then down the line until, you know, sometimes you start socializing with leadership or, you know, people who have even a broader view. And I think those moments when you start looping in other people, I think are good reminders to check in on the bigger picture because you, when you share something with someone else, you need to think about their perspective and consider your audience. And so I think those are the moments where you want to make what you're sharing or what you're presenting really accessible to them and help them see your point of view. And so you kind of have to zoom out to, to where they are. And start there and help, you know, take them along for the ride and help them kind of see how you got to where you where you are in your perspective. And so I think as you kind of broaden that audience, you know, whether it's starting with designer, you know, your kind of coworkers or higher up audiences, then that perspective widens and widens and widens. And so I think that those are good built in checkpoints to kind of step back and say, like, what are they thinking when, when I start this conversation with them and how can I help them see things from my point of view? And in so doing, you kind of, it helps you also check like, what am I missing? Like, I need to be thinking about that bigger picture. Is there a better way to approach this? 
Mm. You know, I, I want to take this opportunity to to ask you a, this two part question because you've spent over uh, ten years working in the UX space, right? Mm-hmm. As right now, you're you're a lead interaction designer at Waymo, but before that, I think uh, you were doing uh, you were the design director, UX design director at Motorola. Mm-hmm. So the, the two part question is this because I think it's an, as the world is being eaten by software, and, and it seems like you're kind of in that really amazing space between hardware and software, but Mm-hmm. UX is not going away and it's more in demand. And then we see large firms buy uh, UX design firms. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting what's going on there. Yeah. So the first part of the question is, what kind of skill sets do you look for and in, in, in somebody that you might uh, bring on your team? Because it's still fairly mysterious uh, to me and to a lot of people, like what the heck is UX and what skills do I need to possess? Because how does one go from being I mean, maybe this is not a great term, but like an athlete or a jock studying communication and then winds up becoming <laughs> the lead interaction is like, that's a strange path to go down. So what skills does somebody have to possess in order to be considered somebody you would think you're a good UX designer? That's part one. Yeah. So uh, interesting question. I think within the UX design world, the the term UX design, I feel like it's always kind of a moving target, what people call the space. I think UX design um, is a pretty good umbrella term. People are also kind of moving toward a product design name. I won't get too rat hold on the name because I think that's an easy target. But I would say that for anyone who is interested in designing in this space um, and the types of skill sets that we look for is I think there's a few areas, I think. And when I think about the people that I've worked with in the past, either either on my team now or who I've worked with in the past who've been successful, there's a few different kind of skill sets that overlap and and everyone kind of has different strengths. I'd say that uh, one of the skill sets is what more traditionally was referred to, has been referred to as interaction design in the past. And that, and I think about that skill as, um, you know, I'd say like 10 years ago or seven years ago, there was this like more traditional uh, role division between interaction designers and visual designers and interaction designers would kind of, or like art, you know, information architects or people who had like design wireframes for how something should work. And then really focus on the flow and the path of, of how someone would move through like a given process or system or website or app. And it was really about, what interactions do they take? What are the, what's their path? And then a uh, complement to that skill set was like a, a more traditional visual designer who could take wireframes and and really focus on uh, high polish visual design and you know making it really you know engaging, compelling, attractive. You know, sometimes design visual designers also had have a great motion skill set, so they could bring in animation and motion. Um, and, and so those are like the two different lenses to think about UX design. And more and more, I think that's, it's not the case that those are two separate roles. A lot of people can hold both and, and some are, you know, stronger in one area than another. But I'd say that UX designers really need to first and foremost kind of understand the goals that someone has and, and really be able to translate those into an overall experience that helps satisfy those goals. And the experience itself is often through a product, through a digital product 
that includes screens and buttons and and all of those things. But I think it, you know skilled UX designers do f- focus on those goals first and foremost, and then have a skill set that they use to help build a product that can achieve those goals. And so I think you know there's a number of different programs out, you know, schools that more and more are teaching skills in, you know, more traditional interaction design, like how, like you, you want to be familiar with, you know, components and patterns that are typical in like user interface design. I think that's, that's one small part of it. And there's, you know, a number of skills that complement that. But I think that's at the core of it is understanding how how someone needs to move through a given product or space in a way that's like usable and satisfies their goals and is user centered. Wow. Okay. There's a lot of terms you dropped in. If you're unfamiliar <laughs> Sorry, with. that was lingo-y. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot in there. But okay. I'm not going to, okay, everybody go to Wikipedia and look up each one of these terms. It's not an efficient use of our time to go through each one of those things. Okay. But the, the second part to the question was this, is that Years ago, when I was still figuring out, like, what the heck is user experience design? I met with an information architect and with, with a friend of mine who's a web designer developer. And I'm like, I just want to see, like, what you do. And he was literally pulling out binders with, seems like, 300 <laughs> pages and just, like, what is this? Uh, like, like, you just copy-paste something off a dictionary? Like, what, what is all this? It's just research. So the question I, I, I get asked often is, like, if you're a UX designer, a product designer, what does your portfolio look like? Like, how do you even demonstrate that this is what you do? You talk about wireframes, flow and path, and probably building user personas, all these other kinds of research-laden stuff. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? I, I mean, how, how do you even show your portfolio? Yeah, that's a great question. I think when it comes to, say, like interviewing for jobs and sharing portfolios, the one thing that I that I hear from hiring managers consistently that, that I agree with is that people are much more interested in understanding your process and how you got to an outcome than uh, seeing like shiny uh, final design uh, that is what, you know, shows up for the public or the real world. I think those things are great to see the impact of what you designed and let's say like adoption or like any, you know, metrics that, demonstrate the impact of of any experience you've had with a product but i'd say any way to articulate your process and and how you solved a given problem is what's really valuable to people who are hiring Uh, because it's it is the ability to work with other people with researchers with engineers with product managers to navigate different constraints you know uh technical constraints and business objectives and business constraints. And if you're, if your goal is to really design um, an industry and like product design or, or UX design, then that is really the skill that people are looking for is the ability to like navigate those partnerships and to still come out with uh, designs that solve real problems for, you know, for the business's customers and that are customer centric. Yeah, and to be a champion for the for the you know the people who will use the product at the end of the day. So you, I don't know if I'm fully answering your question because you're saying what does it look like, 
But yeah. it looks like it can look like a whiteboard sketch. It could look like a hand sketch. It could look like a flow diagram. It could look like pictures of a brainstorm. Or, in some ways, I think when you sh- when you're revealing something that's messy, it almost lends to your credibility that you worked through this messy process and came yeah. out like if you have the shiny glossy thing that's awesome but i also think that being able to articulate your process that isn't like a rote way like first we did research then we defined the solution and then we designed it and then engineering built it those are like in general the steps of product development but they rarely go that way you know sometimes you don't have right. as much time to do as much research as you want or this new business decision happened in the middle of it and you had to shift gears or something, you know, there's always something that makes it kind of hairy. Right. So I think that the more you can articulate your ability to like work through that, the better. Yeah. So I think reflecting back on that experience many years ago, that interaction or uh, the, the information architect and the, the UX designer pretty much showed me what you're talking about. It looked like somebody's brain and a circuit board and all kinds of weird (laughs) stuff. It wasn't pretty. And it was just immense <laughs> amounts of process documentation. So, so you talk about that, and uh, and and maybe uh, your ability to talk about the impact that you've made, that w- how you measure the metrics, and how you were able to work within constraints and solve the the business problem. So, I, I have a challenge for you. My, my challenge for you, Lauren, is if you ever come across a beautiful UX portfolio, will you send me a link to it? Because I'd like to show people like. <laughs> This is what it looks like because anything I've searched online, it just doesn't make any sense to anybody who's not actively learning and doing this, right? Because mm-hmm. if you were to go to, uh, I went to Art Center. Mm-hmm. If you were to go to the gallery and there's like eight or nine different majors, you could literally see beautiful things that is mm-hmm. the byproduct of a whole creative process. I'm, I'm waiting for the day when I go to the UX gallery <laughs> and it's giant binders and, and sticky notes and crude drawings and it's just like mind mapping what is this right so if you come across that will you do me a favor and send that to me definitely i will for I'm, sure. I'm searching desperately seeking chris here okay <laughs> I, i'm just want to be cognizant of time i, I want to ask you just one last question um if we if we rewind the tape and i'm thinking like you're a senior in high school right and you're able to travel back in time a, adult lauren is able to go back and talk to 17 18 year old lauren what kind of advice would you give your younger self? And if it makes sense to to move that timeline earlier or later, feel free to do that. Yeah, great question. I think I would say, you know, things work out and be you and, uh, you know, pursue your interests. And uh, I think to what I was mentioning earlier, you know, you asked those questions about, you know, more classic designers and like what I think of in it uh, when, you know, when you picture a designer is like all black, um, <laughs> you know, black rimmed glasses, like, like very crisp haircut. <laughs> I don't know. And, and like, you know, designer with a capital D. And I think like early in my design career, I wondered like, am I designer enough? Because I was, you know, this athlete and, you know, I didn't come to it until, you know, my grad grad degree. I didn't, you know, I wasn't a designer in undergrad. And, you know, I think it's also something that you learn just through life is that like being yourself is really the only option you have. So embrace it. And so I, I think that that's the first thing that comes to mind is just like 
you know, I wish I was more comfortable in my skin earlier on um, as a younger person. And so I I'd, I'd just want to encourage myself in that way. Mm. Uh, so you want to go back and it's like, you know, here's some designer glasses. <laughs> uh, let's switch out the wardrobe here, a little less color, you know, and, and just be moody all the time. You wouldn't just tell yourself that's how you're going to fit in with the art kids. No. <laughs> No, I think you missed the point, Chris. No, I know. <laughs> You're going to say to yourself, there's going to be this man. His name is Ryan Powell. Trust him, follow him. Everything will work out after exactly. that point. Exactly. Did I mention that Ryan was one of my instructors in grad school? No, but um, I have the your some some background information here on you. That's okay. why I know this. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, that's, it's like one of those things like, like you were mentioning earlier around um, like the sliding doors reference. It's like, yeah. I didn't know that, you know, I'd be working with Ryan, you know, 15 years later, but here I am. Yeah. So that seemed like a pretty pivotal moment for meeting him as an instructor, interning with him at Motorola and now reconnecting at Waymo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel so fortunate again that, um, for, you know, my experience in grad school, but also to have, um, a mentor like Ryan, uh, that I've been able to stay in touch with and other mentors in my life. I think, um, it just goes to show that relationships, you know, they transcend companies and kind of moments in time and, um, are really worth investing in because, um, I think that those are the things you lean on, like as you move through your career in life. Mm. Okay. I have one random personal question. How fast can you throw a softball? My top speed was 66, but I wow. was consistently between like 61 and 65, which for fast pitch is pretty fast, but like yeah. the Olympians will throw it like around 70. Oh, wow. But I, you know, top competitive pitching is anywhere between like 62 and 70, I'd say. Wow. So you do have a very fast pitch then. Impressive. Well, Lauren, it was a delight talking to you today. Thank you for illuminating this strange and wonderful career path that you've had. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you're working on the future. And uh, I'm looking forward to a, a place in a space where we, we actually get to live in that kind of Jetson imagined future. So thank you very much. Thank you. My name is Lauren Schwindeman. You're listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.